Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today it's my pleasure to be talking with Alison Truitt, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Tulane University about her neatly titled book, Dreaming of Money in Ho Chi Minh City, published in 2013 by the University of Washington Press. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. In the book's introduction, you write that you first arrived in Ho Chi Minh City in 1996, having lived in Hanoi for several months. Um, People in Hanoi had warned you about the city. They cautioned you to hold your cash close to your body, to leave your gold jewellery at home, and so on. And nevertheless, despite their warnings, you returned to Ho Chi Minh City in the year 2000, and you say that this time you went to look for money. So what was it that you were doing looking for money, and why Ho Chi Minh City? Uh, When I first went to Vietnam, I studied in Hanoi, and... I think uh, at that time there was a popular perception, which has since been subject to critique, that uh, in order to understand Vietnam, you need to start in Hanoi. Um, And that perception, I think, was particularly strong uh, for people who were going as I was uh, initially to learn the language. So the idea, of course, was that the language that you would... uh, Uh, study was the standardized version of Vietnamese. And of course, that uh, understanding, as as I said, has has been critiqued. But I went down to Ho Chi Minh City after having studied in Hanoi, and the city was overwhelming for me. Uh, And so actually, I am surprised in retrospect. (laughs) that I returned. Uh, I remember on the very last day I was in Ho Chi Minh City, there was a tremendous uh, storm and the entire city just seemed to flood. And I was wondering if I would get back and get to the airport and be able to return to the United States. Uh, um, but I did. And I later took part in a, uh, a brief research project that was on the gender dynamics I was struck by the interviews that we did, particularly in southern Vietnam, uh, of just how much money figured in those narratives that people had. Uh, And so when I went back to conduct my field work, uh, I thought of using money as an organizing device, uh, particularly because it seemed to be money that was drawing so many people Uh, to Ho Chi Minh City at the time. Uh, And, of course, people talked about it as 
kintian, or more basically as kinkam, that is, that you're actually looking for rice, you're looking to nourish yourself, you're looking uh, for something to survive. Um, and so my my uh, approach of looking for money was a little bit different because money became this uh, object uh, for understanding how money was reshaping uh, people's social relations and reshaping uh, how they understood themselves in Vietnam's uh, changing economy. So that was what drew me to Ho Chi Minh City and trying to figure out those dynamics were what kept me in Ho Chi Minh City. And you say that money is not ordinarily used by ethnographers as a device for understanding the what the world that that they're in and that they're they're researching why is it that that money seems to have been overlooked or having spent so much time um, thinking about this problem of money yourself what are the reasons that, that in your your opinion money has been neglected as an, as an analytical tool well I think that has certainly changed over the past decade um, that there has been a revival uh, um, because, of course, money was a, a topic for ethnographers or thinking about valuables, thinking about uh, what were the um, objects of exchanges and transactions, how people symbolized uh, credit. Certainly been a longstanding ethnographic question. Uh, and money has become increasingly an object of interest for ethnographers. Everything, of course, from thinking about national currencies, uh, which I was concerned with in this book, as well as Bitcoin, digital and virtual currencies. But I think that money has or was overlooked precisely because it was something that we assumed we already understood how it Uh, and we understood it to be something which transcended national boundaries, that we understood what money was supposed to do. Uh, and, of course, it infiltrates our lives in ways, I think, that merit ethnographic understanding. And so I wanted to take uh, an object in motion, as it were, of course, because money is always in circulation, and understand those dynamics But I think one of the reasons why it, it, it remains an elusive object of inquiry is uh, partly because uh, we think we know how it works and partly because we presume, of course, that it is stands outside of culture, that money is one of these objects in the marketplace and thus uh, doesn't take on the kind of particular meanings that Uh, we often ascribe to cultural formations. So what are some of the other meanings of money that you examined in your research that shed more light on the ways in which money works that you think are neglected in other research? Well, I was concerned with, for example, how people handled money, uh, how they carried money. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to money as, as a kind of material object was, of course, because during the time that I was conducting my research, uh, Vietnam, most people transacted very much within a cash economy. 
um, that they were not using these kinds of condensed forms of transactions like a credit card that enable you to swipe <laughs> and not worry about the kind of calculations where you're counting out different denominations and carrying the coins and uh, you're um, having to um, deal with the, the kind of material objects of counting and recounting. Um, so that was one of the things that attracted my attention. And certainly uh, in working within a context in which people were dealing primarily with cash in this very physical form gave me um, a, a, something to latch on to for thinking about those dynamics. Uh, and I was interested, of course, in the play of denominations, particularly how people were commenting uh, on what they what they regarded as the kind of worthless denominations um, that were in circulation in the Vietnamese uh, film, the national currency, and how they evaluated that in relation to what seemed to be the hyper-valued $100 bills which were also in circulation. So those kinds of plays around uh, denomination, I think, gave me a way of, of thinking about money in, in a way that would be uh, not as visible in, say, uh, the United States, where people um, have a much more kind of concentrated uh, and standardized understanding of what money is in circulation. You, you've given us a good sense of some aspects of the, the chapters that follow, but one other aspect of the work which I'd like to draw out at the beginning that I found very important and, and fascinating as I worked my way through the book was monetary pluralism. Can you explain what you mean by monetary pluralism and why it's particularly important for your research in Ho Chi Minh City? By monetary pluralism, I was uh, I wanted to capture what uh, was at the time I was doing the research a very visible and palpable uh, way in which people handled money that they didn't handle just a single currency, uh, but people were uh, were also transacting with dollar bills. Uh, they were purchasing and holding, and sometimes transacting with um, bars or tails of gold, uh, as well as the national currency, the Vietnamese dong. And I was struck then whenever I would pass through Thailand or Malaysia and I would attempt to use dollars, that I was just rebuffed every time. Oh, no, we don't take that currency. Oh, you know, why don't you go to an ATM machine and, and get some of the, uh, you know, the local currency? So this monetary pluralism, uh, for me, gave me another way of thinking about the way in which money in Vietnam was not consolidated into this single form, but actually proliferated in different forms. And, and even though people could buy and sell these different currencies, what I also wanted to capture was what were the moments of non-convertibility? What was the value that was signaled by the U.S. dollar that was not signaled by the Vietnamese dollar? So even though, of course, people 
could buy and sell these different currencies. That I also wanted to capture in the ethnography some of what uh, remained unconvertible across these different uh, platforms of value. Can you give us an illustration of this idea of unconvertibility? Well, for, well, for example, uh, some people uh, talked about why uh, they held on to $100 bills, for example. And the $100 bills operated uh, for some people as a kind of savings mechanism because they were so loath to sacrifice that $100 bill. Uh, a few people would carry it in their wallet, for example. Uh, it was a kind of savings or almost an insurance device that money was, that they had money, uh, but it was money that they were loath to part with. It was a form of value that they were reluctant to sacrifice. That in, um, and a, a similar thing also happened around, say, $2 bills, uh, which I found... Uh, very fascinating. Um, U.S. $2 bills, of course, were only um, printed uh, in two years, um, which I think I talked about a little bit in the book, and that these $2 bills were often uh, regarded as symbols of good luck. Now, of course, you could talk about the value of a $2 bill in terms of the Vietnamese don't. What could it be converted into? Uh, what was its value in relationship to uh, Vietnamese dong? But most people felt like there was a value which uh, was in addition to its monetary value. And that was what they wanted to hold on to. And so that dynamic of wanting to hold on to something other than its monetary worth in the marketplace was also what I wanted to capture in this ethnography. And, and you do a, a very good job of, of capturing it through um, a number of cases and chapters organized thematically that we'll turn to in a moment. But before we go to those chapters and, and the current period, your first chapter explores monetary pluralism in the historical setting and the making of Vietnamese money over different periods in modern history. Can you talk us through those periods and how this idea of monetary pluralism and the practice of monetary pluralism is tied very much to successive governments and, and the interaction between states and markets in Vietnam? Well, one of, um, one of the... Uh, goals that I had in, in that first chapter was to uh, break away from a kind of evolutionary narrative of money uh, in which uh, people are transacting with um, these diverse objects, uh, which gradually lead to a kind of a commoditized form, let's say gold, that eventually becomes consolidated under the state um, and given symbolic value as a national currency. Uh, so I wanted to counter that kind of narrative, which emerges very much uh, in relation to a kind of 
Western narrative around state formation. And I also wanted to counter the idea that this monetary pluralism erupts out of a kind of, let's say, failure of post-1975 governance of Vietnam, that it is the failed monetary policies in the Socialist Republic of Vietnam that give way to pluralism. So part of my interest in writing the chapter was actually to propose that uh, monetary pluralism in Vietnam has has, uh, much more historical depth uh, and is related to... um, the colonial encounters in which uh, the French franc, for example, had limited circulation and that coins that bared the imprintur of uh, the uh, royal family were still in circulation. Uh, So my goal in that chapter was actually to work against two of those narratives. The first, of course, being that evolutionary narrative in which money just naturally evolves to uh, this form of national currency. And the other was to actually show that some of these dynamics uh, have been in play for a very long time in Vietnam. Uh, And so there are ways uh, in which we can see historical processes of appropriation, reappropriation of these different forms of value. Uh, So I I, I start, of course, then uh, with trying to understand some of the dynamics around uh, what is called, of course, the the, the pieces of eight or the, uh, um, the Mexican silver dollar which were uh, a a form of currency that was used in wide circulation uh, around Asia and uh, actually uh, for some scholars are what helped to produce a a good kind of global uh, trade. Uh, Anthropologists uh, like Jane Geyer in particular have been interested in what she calls marginal gains. And she makes the argument, which I think is very important in understanding the role of silver in Asia, that of course that we need to understand how these notions of value are never universal, uh, but they take on different values that are distributed differently uh, across different places. So even though silver was very uh, valued for these long-distance exchanges. It was gold that was highly valued in Europe. So I was interested in those kinds of dynamics, and I was also fascinated, and this gets back to my interest in in kind of the the physical um, specimens of money. I was very interested in um, working with money collectors in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, And there were a few people who I had the privilege of working with who had really interesting collections, uh, particularly around the kind of currency that was printed after 1945 in northern Vietnam and in southern Vietnam, uh, and the kinds of competing imagery around uh, these national currencies, one in northern, uh, North Vietnam and the other in South Vietnam, and uh, how people would respond when I showed them these old specimens of currency. So, so, so part of it was 
uh, my pleasure in working with uh, monetary collectors who were very generous with their time and their knowledge, uh, and were very invested in preserving these material specimens of history. So I, I, I found working with them to be uh, really helpful in helping expand my understanding of monetary pluralism as well. From 1975, you, you talk about currency unification and monetary disunification. Can you explain briefly what you mean by that um, distinction? Because it, it helps to set up the subsequent chapters of the book, our discussion very well, I think. Well, currency unification, of course, uh, um, by that I meant the fact that between... 1954 and 1975, uh, there was the National Bank of Vietnam um, in Saigon, and there was a separate national currency that circulated in the Republic of Vietnam with very different imagery uh, and a very different presumption of how the value of that currency was secured than uh, in northern Vietnam. After 1975, one of the tasks of, of course, reunification was how do you, uh, what is the infrastructure that's needed for reunification, which happened in a variety of ways, the educational system, Uh, the train system, roadways, but importantly, money as well. And so there was a, a campaign to create a unified currency that would circulate throughout the entire territory of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. But at the same time, there was also what I called monetary uh, disunification in the sense that Uh, there were two, possibly more, realms uh, in which prices were configured. One of those realms was uh, the state, and the other realm was what people referred to as being in the outside market, where prices were higher, but goods were available. And so that is what I meant by monetary disunification um, or what some people refer to in the literature as a kind of two-price policy where uh, you had one realm in which the prices were set by the state uh, but there were shortages and scarcities that often people needed to have uh, coupons in order to purchase things at the state-authorized prices. But then there was this uh, domain which people referred to as being in the outside market. Uh, and so that's what I meant by monetary disunification. And a feature of this monetary disunification, which you could really draw out very well in this chapter also is, and, and it runs then throughout subsequent chapters, is this disassociation between states and markets, contrary to uh, assumptions in some literature of their, their mutual constitution. So maybe we can explore that further Momentarily, um, we then come into the parts of the book concerned with uh, ideas and practices uh, associated with the use of 
money or rather perhaps monies in Vietnam in the current period. Before we talk through some of the fascinating accounts that you have of how money works, can you say a little bit more about how you did your research on money in Ho Chi Minh City and the period of time in which you were doing it? Well, the bulk of the field work that I conducted for the book was done in the period of 2000 to 2002. Uh, and I did my research in, I would subsequently look back and say in a very haphazard way. <laughs> uh, and haphazard, I, I, I mean that it was based on interviews, uh, it was based on conversations with uh, people who were involved in uh, monetary policies in Saigon before 1975. Uh, I talked to people who had businesses. I sat with them and I paid attention to how people were handling money. Uh, I was very interested in uh, the kinds of techniques which I, I see uh, among some Vietnamese living in the United States about how they would count money, they would fold money, uh, the kind of warnings that they would give me about how I could tell whether uh, um, particularly paper currency was uh, counterfeit or not. I was interested in the kind of evaluations that people had uh, around what it meant to where they saved money, uh, how they held money, what they thought about spending money. I was also interested in, in, in just watching the everyday exchanges in order to get at some of the dynamics in play. I think one of the insights of ethnography is to slow down. That is to actually see what people are doing in ways that we just don't pay much attention to as we go about our everyday lives. I think um, one of the things that I found about paying attention to money, of course, was how people would hold on to certain uh, denominations and how other people, for example, one of the things I talk about was how um, casually some people would use very large denominations of Vietnamese currency and how this placed a burden on some of the vendors to actually produce change for those large bills. Uh, so those were the kind of dynamics I think that would have been difficult uh, to get at relying only on interviews but became evident when I, I did, in a kind of classical ethnographic fashion, observed what people were doing. And I think let's move to a number of the, the chapters now. We're not going to get through them all, but, but there's a great deal of very rich material that's worth looking at. And uh, the chapters also, I should say, um, the titles are, are beautiful, like the title of the book itself, they're succinct, but they're also informative and evocative. So the chapter two you refer to as renovating households, two words, and yet both of the words, as the chapter makes clear, 
are enormously important for understanding um, the everyday economy and use of money in Ho Chi Minh City. So can you talk us through um, a bit of that chapter and especially highlight what you mean both by uh, renovation and household as, um, signifiers of something more politically and, and economically? Well, I, I, I do have to say my hat is off to many of the anthropologists who've worked in Vietnam and have drawn in uh, my attention in, in, in important ways to how the household uh, is revived as a central economic unit. In Vietnam, and I think this is is a, is a really uh, is a very important point, particularly when thinking about, let's say, consumer society in uh, the United States or in uh, late capitalist societies, where in fact a lot of uh, the understanding or the ideology of uh, around money is that money stops at the doorstep of the household. Uh, in Vietnam, I, I was very interested in understanding how, in fact, um, money were moved in very different ways within households, um, partly through uh, people's reliance on uh, the remittance economy, uh, certainly through the internal migration, which has contributed to the vast expansion of Ho Chi Minh City in that people traveled to uh, Ho Chi Minh City uh, in an effort to improve uh, not only their, their personal uh, economic welfare, but also the welfare of their households. When I talked about renovating households, of course, I was drawing on uh, what has become a kind of key event in understanding uh, Vietnam, which is uh, renovation itself, or Doi Moi. And by bringing those together, I, I wanted to counter then uh, what, again, is one of the um, dominant narratives uh, around money uh, in uh, capitalist societies and that is how it steps at the door uh, at the doorstep of the house. Of course, there's a lot of critical work on this as well. Um, but part of my effort was to show how money worked at a very intimate level in Vietnamese society, which merited again ethnographic attention. Um, and so uh, I wanted to locate the first. Uh, or at least set up a kind of dynamic around money within the household as a way of addressing um, the very intimate dynamics around the monetization of social relations. Maybe you can uh, illustrate the point with reference to one of the um, stories that you recount in the chapter. There's a a couple that trade in pork down the street from the central market, um, um, money and marriages, and a story of a young woman who migrates to Japan for work and then returns to Vietnam. Perhaps I mean, draw on one of those to, to go into these points a little bit further. 
Well, I'll draw on the story of uh, the woman who migrates uh, to Japan, which uh, she was someone who I've remained in contact and have seen, of course, uh, how her, her life um, has transformed after this migration experience. But one of the things that struck me was how heavily she needed to rely on her family in order to migrate, that her older sister had to use uh, the title to her house as, as, um, as a guarantee that, of course, she would return to Vietnam. And much of the money that she made while she was in uh, Japan was then actually brought back by the company owner and then given to her family to repay uh, the debt. I was struck when she returned, and and, um, I'm I'm not sure how much I was able to convey uh, about this. I, I did have the opportunity to visit her. In uh, Japan, I visited her with an American friend who was fluent in Japanese, and and uh, our arrival, since I spoke Vietnamese and my friend spoke Japanese, uh, apparently caused a lot of consternation because the owner thought that we were uh, human rights inspectors. Um, but I did have a chance to visit her and and talk to her about just how much she had. Uh, she understood her role at that time in terms of earning money uh, and how hard they worked. Um, But when she returned, she, in fact, uh, in some ways, was brought back into her extended family, that she ended up purchasing a house which was part of a complex owned by another one of uh, her brothers, and uh, she, in fact, returned to her position, cooking for the family, uh, providing child care. Uh, and when I last spoke with her, she had sold the house that she had bought, and that money was then used for her, for her um, extended family to purchase what was... Uh, a fairly large size villa, but she had no ownership in that villa. And I think she was just coming to terms with understanding what she had lost in terms of her own independence as a property owner by having sold her own house in order to put the money to purchase a larger house that then became uh, someone else's property. So I think those dynamics for me were very revealing that we do need to understand how money moves through uh, families, how it shapes kin-based relations uh, in, in important ways. And so her uh, life history and her uh, ongoing, in a sense, quest to uh, both... Uh, maintain her moral sense of belonging within the family, but still find uh, a position outside of these family structures has uh, been very moving for me to uh, witness and to talk to her about over 
what's now more than a decade. And her story also goes to a number of, a couple of other themes that work their way across the book. One is territoriality and what it means to relate money to a particular territory or, or otherwise. The other one um, concerns what you describe as the dollarization of the economy, and partly due to remittances, but for other reasons as well. So there are two chapters where the dollar figures very prominently in the discussion, one on dollarization and the other, perhaps somewhat to my surprise, um, when we move into the spirit world. And please tell us a bit about um, why dollars matter and how they relate to the larger problems with which you're concerned in the book? Well, I think uh, scholars, tourists, uh, in some ways, uh, people who are Vietnamese themselves, of course, uh, comment on the appearance of $100 bills as a um, value form, a kind of representational form that uh, people use to mediate um, with the spirit world, whether uh, it's in making offerings to um, spirits of temples or gods or ancestors. Uh, I was struck on several occasions um, by the ways in which people would comment on the quality of these um, of spirit money in the form of $100 bills, uh, that people would often comment on it as, you know, that this, oh, this is a very high-quality spirit money, um, and this you can only buy in the cities, or this actually is a perfect imitation of a $100 bill. It didn't have on the averse side, uh, the expression in Vietnamese, which indicates that this is from the bank of hell. No, it was actually a perfect imitation. And so people felt uh, a kind of anxiety around whether this could actually be uh, seen as a counterfeit $100 bill. So my interest in that was actually to complicate uh, the the, this divide between what we might think of as money circulating in this world and forms of money that were destined for the other world. Um, because people actually felt a, a very kind of palpable anxiety around the appearance of these $100, uh, $100 bills that were uh, intended to be offered and burned and, and their... Um, value sent to to uh, spirits. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to capture was that kind of um, anxiety. Um, and it, it became clear in talking to even a government official who uh, remarked on what he saw as a kind of, uh, of way in which the offerings made at the grave sites of fallen soldiers who had fought uh, to liberate southern Vietnam, that these $100 bills were illicit, that they should not be left on these altars, even though, of course, 
uh, one could argue that they that they signified uh, something very important for those people who were making the offerings. Um, so I was um, I was very interested in understanding those kinds of conversations that were happening around the appearance of hundred dollar bills, where it was seen as uh, legitimate, and where the appearance of these hundred dollar bills seen as illegitimate. How and why did we get to this situation where the dollar figures so prominently in in the use of money and the meaning of money in, in Vietnam? You, you mentioned that uh, after 1975, the US dollar was contraband, and yet by the early 1990s, approximately 40% of bank deposits were in US dollars. It's a a remarkable story and what you succeed in doing in the book is really telling how there are many layers of meaning associated with that story that as you reiterate throughout the book that this is not just a story of, of financial transactions but of so much more can you explain a little bit more about the dollarization phenomenon and what it means for Vietnamese Well, in the book, one of the things that I do uh, try to trace it to is the way in which, of course, as you had uh, pointed out in one of your earlier questions, that the state and market are not uh, constituting each other, but rather that money became a way of eluding the state uh, and that people were drawing on this kind of market uh, potential as a way of avoiding or escaping the kinds of restrictions that were placed on consumption, uh, that money became in some ways an alternative to the state-designated uh, categories of personhood. Uh, and I think It's at that point where we can understand the role of the dollar, not as the U.S. dollar, but as the global dollar. Um, but at the same time, I was interested as well in the fact that, of course, it did have resonance as the American dollar, the U.S. dollar, because, of course, you have this channeling of uh, money from um, the diaspora, in the form of overseas remittances. But as I argue in the book, I, it's equally important to understand the kind of global dynamics around dollarization. Uh, because the dollar in some ways escapes the control of even the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so it signifies then this global marketplace. And people fashion themselves insofar as they want to demonstrate their membership within uh, this kind of global understanding of subjectivity, one that isn't entirely indebted to uh, understanding oneself in national terms or nationalist terms, but rather draws on the potency of global markets. And the dollar, uh, at least at the time that I was conducting my research, uh, was uh, the preeminent way of fashioning oneself, more so than gold, although that, I think, uh, changed uh, with the uh, increase in the price of gold after uh, 9-11. 
But during the time that I was conducting most of the research, I think what I tried to understand was that the dollar had these two sides. It was, yes, it was the U.S. dollar, but it was also importantly a global currency that couldn't be completely tethered to the United States. Another uh, a thing that struck me, and this is, I think, where interviews are so very important in listening to what people say is, I was quite surprised when I would ask people, which was one of my standard interview questions, when did you first hold an American dollar? When did you first come into contact? Or do you first recall seeing a U.S. dollar? And I was really surprised that most people talked about handling U.S. dollars in the 1980s. I had expected it to be much earlier, uh, which isn't to say that dollars weren't in circulation, but as I argue in the book, that there, that the U.S. military actually created a kind of military script that people referred to as red dollars, which was in circulation. And uh, that the appearance of dollars in uh, the Vietnamese economy in some ways uh, is important to link with uh, what people perceived in the 1980s as a kind of failure of the Vietnamese currency with hyperinflation uh, and, of course, the remittances, which uh, were a very important way in which people were um, coming into contact with dollars as they were sent in. Uh, people were sewing them up in the jeans of their clothes uh, that they sent to family and friends in Vietnam. They were rolling them up inside of of tubes and uh, radios. So there were multiple ways in which uh, these dollars really uh, began to resurface in the 1980s. And so I was uh, very interested in that dynamic because, um, as as I said, my initial reaction was that people would have come into contact or handled uh, dollars uh, much sooner than they did. It was really Many people located it in the 1980s when they first started handling dollars. Some people might be surprised that our discussion so far has um, barely, perhaps not at all, referred to the Communist Party and its place in in all of this. Uh, I I don't think we're being remiss. Indeed, the party moves in the the background of the stories that you're you're telling and perhaps emerges only... uh, at a couple of key moments towards the end of the book um, in relation to other state institutions such as around the buying and, and selling of land. But how does the party engage with this issue of dollarization? And you mentioned the failure of um, the Vietnamese currency at a certain period. And what are the implications for it? Uh, you, you do talk a little bit about how um, monetary pluralism, in a sense, challenges the state and its representations of self. So if we can explore that aspect of the book briefly before closing, it would be great. Well, I think that the role of the state is critical um, at several moments. And one of those moments was when the... The Vietnamese state bank encouraged banks to actually allow people to deposit, to open U.S. dollar-denominated accounts. 
and so that actually led this led people um, to open up these accounts in order to build a domestic credit market. So I think that was one way in which the there were official policies that recognized U.S. dollars and gold as quasi-official currencies in circulation. Um, One of the dilemmas, of course, was that in order to rebuild people's confidence in the U.S., uh, excuse me, in the Vietnamese currency, that uh, the State Bank of Vietnam um, had to, in fact, uh, peg, not a, not a hard peg, but a kind of soft peg of the Vietnamese dome to the U.S. dollar uh, in such a way that um, people would begin, in a sense, to move from holding dollars to uh, using the Vietnamese dome, which um, has... Uh, been moderately successful, uh, but still there is is a way in which uh, the monetary policies in Vietnam are still, I don't want to say held hostage, that's not the right term, but still have to reckon with the monetary policies of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so we can see, of course, that this has some implications for how much uh, sovereign authority um, the Vietnamese government is able to have in terms of shaping monetary policy. So dollarization in Vietnam has been, uh, in some ways, acknowledged by the government by allowing people to hold uh, U.S. dollar savings accounts Uh, and by authorizing venues like gold shops as being places where people could buy and sell across these multiple monetary forms. And you talk about the relationship of the state and the party to these changes, not only in terms of its practices, but also ideology. So while on the one hand the party insists on maintaining political and administrative power, we see a reordering of concepts, if I recall it correctly, from strong people and rich country to rich people and strong country, a a subtle lexical shift and yet an important one, again, for the story you're you're telling. Is that correct? Well, yes, I think this is uh, um, one of the dynamics that anthropologists working in both Vietnam particularly China, have uh, made an argument about how, in fact, wealth needs uh, becomes, in effect, something that people uh, can pursue. Um, Anthropologists like Anne-Marie Leskovich, who have worked with vendors, uh, are more cautious um, and argue that, of course, the displays of wealth are more uh, socially legitimate when they're happening in relationship to consumption rather than production. Uh, And so uh, this is a kind of element, I think, which is uh, important to take into account, but that shift in which uh, people can make uh, and display uh, status objects like dollars 
like motorbikes, uh, become uh, very much part of the street scenes in, uh, in cities like Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, and so money is an important element by which status becomes um, displayed. And you have a wonderful story towards the end of the book of a purchase of a motorcycle from a motorbike dealer, a kind of activity that goes on every day, and yet it seems to catch up so many elements of the of the book's contents. Again, the use of multiple currencies, the aspirations of the person purchasing the motorcycle to something um, more expensive than what they can afford, and and so on. Um, the the, the many plastic cards that the vendor has in his possession, but none of them um, credit cards or cards of the sort that people in the United States or Australia, where I am, may may hold in their, their wallets. Uh, really, there's so many more um, elements to this story, but people are going to have to turn to, to the book and to to go further into it, and indeed I would encourage all of the listeners to do so. Before we came online, you mentioned that you're in the thick of working on a new book right now, so can you please take the time to tell us about what you've been doing since you completed um, Dreaming of Money? Well, I have two projects that I'm working on. Uh, One, of course, comes from Dreaming of Money in Ho Chi Minh City, and that is a social history of gold in Vietnam. I feel, uh, in retrospect, when I look back on how I was thinking about gold, I subsumed it under the U.S. dollar. Uh, And I feel I made... um, both a kind of historic and analytical error in doing so. Uh, And so my uh, more recent field work in Ho Chi Minh City has been on uh, kind of changing practices around gold. Uh, I talk about dollarization when I was in Vietnam in 2012, and um, people were talking about the ways in which gold had reshaped monetary policies and the ways in which uh, the Vietnamese uh, state bank was trying to, in a sense, remove gold's role as a form of money. So I have, uh, that has, as, as a kind of project that emerged out of uh, this initial book project, but I'm working on a second book project based on Vietnamese Buddhist communities in the Gulf South uh, region of the United States. Uh, So that is a project that has uh, taken me from Western Louisiana to the panhandle of Florida. So I have been interested in Uh, looking at the kind of politics around creating and maintaining Buddhist communities in uh, the Gulf South, uh, which is a very fragile ecosystem uh, um, with a threat of hurricanes uh, and a region that has not received a lot of attention uh, within Asian studies. Uh, A lot of the work has been done. Um, on the East Coast and the West Coast. So I have been interested in in making a a contribution by looking at these communities in the Gulf 
Gulf South region. In a sense, that does also build on this book in, in so far as the story of well, the, the transnational dimensions of the book are, are an important part of the story you're telling, remittances you've referred to. But as you've raised gold, I can't help but take a moment to dwell on it before we close. Uh, you, you do mention in the book that you think about gold in terms of intergenerational transfers especially and its function as a store of private wealth as against the US dollar as more of a contemporary transnational phenomenon which evokes different feelings. So are you saying that you've changed your view on how you've situated these two commodities in the book or you're developing the story of gold further? No, I mean, in part, uh, that kind of claim came out of interviews, uh, particularly with uh, older Vietnamese who would often chastise their adult children for saving in dollars. Uh, And even at that time, before um, gold began its remarkable increase in price uh, between 2001 up to 2011, 2012. Um, And so I was very interested in how people conceptualized gold uh, in terms of something that had this enduring value that was linked to real estate, that was linked to property, was very much kind of rooted in this kind of substance. uh, And they evaluated dollars quite differently. But part of my interest in a social history of gold is to understand, of course, how it uh, was so important in mediating uh, this flight of people from Vietnam. Many people talk about how they paid for passages in gold rings and tales of gold. And I'm also very interested in what I don't think that I, I, I really did justice to the importance of um a form of gold produced by the Saigon Jewelry Company, which really introduced a new form of gold to the market in the very late 1980s and early 90s. Uh, And so part of what I'm interested in is really looking at that market device uh, and how today um, the State Bank of Vietnam is in fact, trying to, uh, it can't demonetize that device um, because it is so widely held. There are apparently estimates that there have been 20 million of these small gold bars um, that have been produced. It, it, of course, can't be demonetized, but it has led to some very, I think, interesting discussions around the use of gold as a form of money. So uh, those are some of the dynamics that I have been uh, uh, looking into in this um, kind of subsequent part two version of the book. Fascinating. Well, um, Alison Truitt, do let us know when the gold book is out. And thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today about dreaming of money in Ho Chi Minh City. Well, I was delighted to do so, and I thank you for uh, engaging me in this uh, hour-long conversation. I enjoyed it very much to rethink uh, about some of the issues uh, raised in this book, and I appreciate uh, your invitation. Well, I've greatly enjoyed it as well, and thanks to everyone for listening. Do join me again 
next time for our monthly meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have time, you may also like to check out some of the other great channels in history, politics, and area studies on the New Books Network. Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey!